0: They can cancel schools, shut down airports, and the big ones can even paralyze cities for days. They are winter storms, and they track all across the country every year. As complicated weather systems where details of temperature and pockets of dry air and subtle bands of intense snowfall make the difference between a few flurries and a few feet of snow, we are here today to look at them more closely. Please welcome two of my colleagues from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the best in the business in understanding the structure and predictability of mid-latitude and tropical weather systems, and I would say true leaders In the scientific community, they are professors Dr. John Martin and Dr. Michael Morgan. They join us today to discuss why winter storms behave the way they do and how we can understand them better. So get ready, Weather Geek fans. We're really going to roll up our sleeves and get into the details of winter storms. I'm Dr. Greg Postel for Weather Geeks. And my friends John and Michael, so glad you guys are here Let's get started. All right. First up, the predictability of winter storms. I'm going to send it to both of you guys, John and Michael. You guys can battle it out. Uh, The topic here, why are snowfall forecasts so challenging?
1: It's a good question. Um, I'll start with one thing. Michael's going to have a different perspective than me. I'll say this, that within the context of the gigantic scale of mid-latitude weather systems, and they'll cover 10 or 12 states at one time, um, within that giant scale, the narrowness of the, of the heavy precipitation bands, and I think we focus more on them when they fall in the form of snow in the wintertime, is exceptionally small. And so trying to figure out precisely where a little thin ribbon strip of heavy snow is going to fall within the context of a 10-state scale storm makes the problem difficult right from the outset. John, I think
2: you're, you're absolutely right on that. I don't really disagree with that. I mean, you think about it, snowfall is going to involve sort of several ingredients, Is it cold enough? The lack of of, or the sufficiency of the moisture that's there and the dynamics that you're sort of, uh, I guess, implying from the structure of those bands. And so often some of the largest snowfalls, as you just described, are associated with these nearly stationary bands of moderate to heavy precipitation that can dump a significant amount of snow. And I think the issue is where do those bands set up? Right. Um, And you don't really know that, at least in my experience, it's often – until the pres- just before the precipitation's about to start or once it started, how things eventually uh, land. It could be a difference of 25 or 50 miles that's the difference between dry ground and shovelable snow. Yeah, so, that's exactly right.
0: Well, uh- why don't we know where those bands are going to set up, say, a couple days in advance? What's what's uh, the issue there?
2: Well, part of it's the, um these bands are in, in some cases associated with uh, dynamical processes like frontogenesis, the formation of these intense thermal gradients. And models have inherently have errors, both in their initial conditions as well as in the models themselves have errors. And as you project data forward in time in a forecast model, getting precisely where that band is gonna set up, it's a challenge. These models are resolving things maybe now down to the sub uh, 10 kilometer scale but these bands are probably about 30 kilometers, and so you could be just a couple of grid points off, and mm-hmm. that could be all the difference.
1: Yeah, and, and as Michael alluded to earlier, I think it's a to get a really heavy snow or lack thereof is a result of a confluence of a number of different circumstances that are semi independent of each other. They're not entirely independent of each other, but they're semi independent of each other. And so the analogy I always have in my mind is if you want to really nail down the exact timing and well in advance and position of a snow band in a heavy snowstorm. It's like making a, a combination shot on the pool table that involves <laughs> the uh, cue ball uh, hitting five different balls before the object ball. And the chances of making that shot, except for somebody like Greg, are very right. low. Always. Yeah. So so what you're saying is these tiny little differences that are within the
0: you know, scope of error at the initial time are going to lead to widely different outcomes. And so we just don't know which one's going to be the, the right I think one. That's, I think that's right.
2: Right. Yeah. And numerical weather predictions inherently... Uh, a non-linear dynamical system problem. Not to get too geeky about it. But no,
0: get geeky. Let's go. Yeah,
2: the sense You know, you know these, and in those, in that context, the, the forecasts are very, are very sensitive to the initial conditions. So there's a slight difference in initial conditions.
0: They're state dependent, right? There's not they're, they're not white noise, so to speak. So let's talk sure. about some forecast misses. Like for example, I'm thinking of one, the couple that come to mind, like uh, New York uh, last month, where I remember. Uh, New York got about Central Park got over six inches. And I think the forecast even a day before that was for almost nothing from many uh, outlets. Or the one in just this last weekend in Virginia where Richmond, for example, got, you know, oh, gosh, I don't know, almost a foot of snow. And the forecast a day before from, again, many outlets was almost nothing. So mm. what w- when we see that and we look back, how how can we go forward and, and improve
2: things? Well, I think part of the uh, issue with the most recent storm in uh, southern Virginia and or in the Carolinas, North Carolina, was the models about two or three days out. Mm-hmm. I think you could have, in fact, I, I make forecasts for friends in that area. I was talking to them about the possibility of several inches of snow. And then as as the model, as we went forward in time closer to the timing of the event, the likelihood of it being just all snow in Richmond seemed to sort of evaporate as it looked like significant warming was going to occur mm-hmm. that would change that precipitation over to uh, rain. So let the me just. Extent- I'm yeah, sorry. L-
0: let me just step in. It seems like that that Richmond bust was not a snow band. It was like not one of those mesoscale band issues. It was a much larger um, error associated with the phase and amplitude of the storm, and maybe even the temperature profile as well.
2: I think that's a, that's that's correct, and the northern extent of that snow band was also a very tricky issue for folks that live just south of the D.C. area. How far north would that band, mm-hmm. or would the leading edge of the snow progress right. before it actually shifted back to the south? And I think that's really a communication mm-hmm. issue. How to communicate the uncertainty that was certainly in the forecast when they the forecast really just about every model had a very tight northern boundary on where the snowfall is going to occur, mm-hmm. and this was a situation where communicating that uncertainty, which I didn't follow the forecast in that area carefully, um, I think that was certainly going to be a big factor. But some of the model um, ensemble members are just looking at different collections of models did hint at this northward shift Uh um, that ultimately Mm -hmm. did occur.
1: And and from an academic point, instead of an operational point, I wonder how many so-called snow forecast busts would disappear if we only looked at the Actual observed precipitation versus the um, forecasted precipitation amount in the liquid equivalent form. Right. So, in other words, right. uh, I think what you're you're both alluding to it. Maybe in the Virginia case, there was a. Um, a misperception about just how long it would stay cold in the Richmond area as mm-hmm. of when the storm approached. And that has something to do with the development of the storm, for sure, but it's not the only thing that, that uh, can throw you off there. You might have ended up with the same liquid equivalent precipitation in Richmond as was forecast. It's just that most of it fell as snow, and that's a huge impact. Uh, impactful um, uh, error so, as opposed to just rain. So,
2: yeah. John, you're tr- what you're saying is that it's the precipitation type. If you ignored the precipitation type initially and just looked at yeah. QPF. Right. If How got- many
1: busts would disappear? Right. I think a, lot a lot of them would. And I'll tell them. you, right. a lot of them would.
0: Yeah, they would because when you have the good forecast by lots of metrics, you straddle that error on the phase change of water, <laughs> 32, you're going to come up with all kinds of different scenarios with an acceptable error in the forecast. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, and that's complicated That Mm. phase change from ice back to water is complicated. It can be affected by the presence of unsaturated air beneath the precipitation falling out. And that doesn't even really register in your your dry bulb temperature, the kind you see on the bank thermometer. That's not – how many people have seen it snowing at 36 degrees Fahrenheit and wondered, why is that happening? It's because the snowflakes are sublimating. Uh, going right from ice to vapor, and that cools the air sufficiently to protect them as a snowflake. And I a... think
2: that's actually the—you was mm-hmm. that you could attribute that effect, that um, process, to the bust that occurred in New York and also parts of Maryland and the D.C. area back a month ago in that other storm. Mm-hmm. That I think perhaps—I haven't looked at it carefully, but the uh, the models may have been underestimating the the depth of the cold, dry air that was being transported southward. Mm.
0: All right. I got another question here for you. Now, again, relating to the predictability of the things. Would you say— Um, more data uh, will make a forecast better. I mean, we oftentimes hear that they're uh, initiating several uh, balloon sawn launches to improve the forecast or, you know, they're targeting certain areas. And let's stick with winter storms and not go with tropical cyclones because that's a different animal. But let's talk about winter storms and sampling um, just with greater density of observations. Is that going to make your forecast better?
2: In general, the answer is yes. Um, additional data is going to improve forecasts. There have been a number of case studies and uh, field programs that were conducted since the mid-1990s into the early 2000s during what was called the Thorpex era. That was a broad global uh, set of field experiments. And during those campaigns, they would send out what they called um, targeted, they conducted these targeted observing missions in which they would fly aircraft or take additional observations in areas that were deemed sensitive to the forecast. Now Those are based on singular vectors, right? based on singular just based on uh, forecast spread, and they actually demonstrated that there was an improvement in the forecast. Now the interesting thing is, during that same period of time, one of the greatest advances in numerical weather prediction was occurring, and that was improvements in how we actually handle the data that gets into the models. Mm -hmm. And so as forecast skill increases, the average marginal impact of any individual observing system is going to go down. So more recent studies that have been looking at this, the NOAA conducted this winter storm reconnaissance program back in the that ended, I think, in 2014, and they began to see that there was very small impacts to these additional observations. So it's getting Mm. tougher to actually identify that, and that's perhaps due to the fact that we're using data more effectively. So the marginal... um, Addition to improving the forecast from an additional observation has perhaps gone down mm-hmm. in recent years. So, yeah,
1: I, go ahead, I sometimes think about a, a sort of a common sense analogy here. If you had, if you imagine a world in which there's lots of automobiles but no traffic lights anywhere, the installation of any new traffic light is bound to improve the safety of the roads. But after a point it's only, it's really only going to matter if you put them in really sensitive spots in the traffic it doesn't matter if you put them somewhere else mm-hmm. and so you know as michael said as as these observing systems and assimilation techniques evolve the places where you can make an improvement get a little bit less uh, pervasive. And it uh, takes a lot more sophistication to figure out where to do that.
0: Well, the counter argument is, too, is if you add more data, which obviously is inherently flawed, there are errors associated with those uh, pieces of information, and you project those onto areas in the atmosphere that are very sensitive to growth, uh, then you could end up with a very bad forecast. So in every any given instant, adding more data, you don't know which direction the forecast is going to go, if it's going to get any better or get any worse. Is that Right. Correct?
2: That's actually a, an excellent point. So As you said, if you put data in these regions that you believe the forecast is sensitive to um, changing the initial conditions there, you certainly run the risk if the data is not properly handled or Mm -hmm. if it has significant errors in it that could contaminate the forecast. And so when you look at these measures of improvement, it really is not just from one case to the next case, but you have to look at a whole series of cases. And statistically, you can show that there is – Um, some marginal improvement. But the other part of this is that's really interesting is that the metrics that are used for winter storms are not necessarily ones that society has an interest in. And and then it becomes very difficult to determine the value Of these, obs- of mm-hmm. you know, the sort of cost-benefit analysis that's done. Right. Just because you've decreased the forecast spread by a couple percent, does that really have a significant impact on what's realized? by <laughs> forecast consumers? Yeah, right. Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah.
0: So let me go. Let me step ahead to uh, ensemble forecasting because um, we know that uh, the predictability or lack thereof um, requires a sort of ensemble view. Um, how are these forecasts made, and are the members of the individual ensemble members uh, equally likely? And I'll just send that to both you guys.
2: Yeah. So for ensemble forecasts, yeah, the members aren't necessarily necessarily equally likely. Um, the idea, I, mean, I would say, let's stick go away from ensembles for just a second and go to the farm and look at you know growing corn. Suppose you had you're asked to estimate the likelihood that the of the yield of a particular variety of corn um, by planting samples of it. You know, you might just take a handful of corn from a sack, broadcast it into the field, and watch it grow, and then. Try to make some estimates about what the yield would be if you had several samples of that. Well, the problem with that is the seeds could land on rocky areas and not grow. Some of the seeds could be spoiled. Um, it depends on the weather you know, during the season, the growing season. So how does this relate to ensemble forecast? When you select members for an ensemble, you want them to be placed in regions that are going to grow so you get some sufficient spread in the ensemble forecast. You have to recognize that the errors in the forecast can grow. The uncertainties can be flow dependent and grow in different directions. Not all errors are equal, and so the selection of ensemble members is really a tricky business. I mean, the European Center does this using what are called singular vectors, which mm-hmm. are just disturbances which grow rapidly over prescribed amount of time. And what they're trying to estimate is um, the probability distribution of forecast errors at a final time. Mm-hmm. And so what they're going to do is look at the initial conditions, and they have an estimate for what the errors in the initial conditions are. You want to take samples from that. At estimate of the initial condition errors put into your forecast model um, in regions where things are going to grow rapidly, and then they can look at the spread of those forecasts to get some sense of the likely um, probability de- you know, density function at the final time for the forecast. And that seems to have been a pretty productive way of generating these forecasts.
0: I think it's important to note, and I'll bring you in, John, here. It's important to note, though, though when you look at the spread in the individual members of the ensembles, you, I mean if they're tightly packed you have an idea that the model itself is confident but if they're widely spread you have no idea among that distribution which one is more likely than the other
1: yeah i te- i look at this as a non expert i don't i don't deal with this as a research question but what you just said greg is a really important uh, guidepost for how uh, somebody like me and and then people who might use these things for Uh, you know, operations, might interpret them. There are going to be days where you can say to yourself, boy, you know, even though we're not sticking with just one simulation here, we're looking at a whole collection of them, they're all saying the same thing. That does tell you some valuable information on that particular, let's say, Wednesday. And then if it's followed by a Friday in which there's a whole collection of solutions that come out of that same sample, then you just can't as confidently say that you know what's going to happen on the following day. But you can but what you can do, and this is a nice thing that you couldn't do uh, without the ensembles, is you can kind of give some sense to the to the uh, forecast uh, consumer what sort of bounds should that person expect mm-hmm. in terms of the uncertainty, and that's you know that's fantastic, rather like if you go to the doctor and you have a cough and the doctor says, "I'm one hundred percent sure all you have is a cold." Uh, As opposed to going there and having somebody say, well, you know, it could be one of eight different things. I can't be certain what it is, but you should have a second check on this as Mm -hmm. it gets a little bit worse or better. Right.
2: Right. And so that spread, you know, is really going to be dependent on whether or not you have a really robust ensemble. And so that's really a tricky thing is how do you take the ensemble data? You just want to take it based on is there a lot of spread or a little spread, but also there are, you know, emerging lots of very sophisticated post-processing techniques that allow people to really begin to estimate the probabilities on the onset of mm-hmm. a snowfall or the probability that it, of when the time, you know the change to rain might occur so yeah, there yeah. are a lot of other things you have to do once you have that ensemble forecast to correct it because it may have some biases that you want to remove there ways ways of post-processing it to get more value out of it.
0: That sounds awesome. Okay, so guys, we're going to have to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about winter storms and the structure of winter storms. And I know, John, you're going to be chomping at the bit to get at this. You are a winter weather expert extraordinaire, and I can't wait to get both of your inputs on that. And we'll be right back. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Greg Postel. i with Professors John Martin and Michael Morgan from the University of Wisconsin-Madison talking about the structure now of weather systems and, and in particular of winter storms. And, John, I'm going to you. You are a master, a leading expert in the world about understanding what uh, winter storms look like and how they behave. What the heck is this whole notion of wraparound precip and that comma shape to these storms? Well,
1: thanks. That's nice of you to say on the first part. The the comma shape of the typical Well, no, I was kidding cyclone, on the first part. You well, know, that was just all know, between you and I me. I knew that. I yeah. knew that. That's just a diplomatic thing to do right. for the commercial appeal, but— um, <laughs> The um, the wraparound structure of these storms is a consequence of the um, the way in which they develop in in mid latitudes. Weather systems are very asymmetric. The vertical motion distribution on a broadest scale is to the east of the disturbances aloft, and sinking occurs uh, to the west of them. And so the cloud mass is usually. Uh, on the eastern side of these storms. The interesting part of, of uh, well-developed storms, those that are approaching the end of their full uh, development stage, is that on the northwest quadrant in the northern hemisphere, there'll be a wrap-around cloudiness, and that cloudiness has considerable precipitation falling out of it. Most often in a winter storm, uh, a large fraction of that will be falling as snow. The notion, uh, the word that's been used a lot to describe some of the heavy snow in the northwest quadrant of these storms is so-called wraparound precipitation. And that, to me, that implies that the precipitation particles and the vertical motion that generates them has occurred somewhere else, and then those particles have been imported into that portion of the storm, and it robs that part of the storm of its really interesting dynamics, which so in the real world, the right. storm the heavy snow is produced locally in that mm-hmm. portion of the storm, and so that begs an explanation for what drives the production of the vertical motions, the upward vertical motions that do it they're not the snow isn't being brought in from somewhere else it 's being locally produced and then dropped right there so let 's talk about why it's produced locally go for now, it I think it's produced <laughs> locally because there are Several different processes going on in the atmosphere that are contributing to the production of two things at once. One of them is the development in the late stages of a cyclone of this really beautiful thermal ridge that connects the peak of the warm sector in the storm, which by this point in its evolution is far removed from the minimum in sea level pressure. Yeah, It connects that peak of the, of the warm sector to the center of the cyclone. That thermal ridge is part and parcel of a process that is among the most fundamental for the development of cyclones, and that is there's a a rearrangement of the circulation at two different levels in the atmosphere that leads to the production of vertical motions, and that is what we call vorticity advection, differential in the vertical, actually. And that vorticity advection simultaneously bends the thermal structure into the shape of the thermal ridge. So the thermal ridge that connects the warm sector to the low center in the northwest quadrant of the storm is a really uh, a hotbed for the production of upward vertical motions that at the same time are rearranging the thermal structure into the most exquisite structures that we see uh, on the globe, they including are, in the tropics.
0: They are beautiful, and you can argue, right, John, tell me if I'm correct here, that the large part of that is non-frontogenetical, correct? This is associated with the rotation of the thermal field not requiring...
1: That's correct, uh, and, and especially if one considers uh, the flow that's that's quasi non-divergent, mm-hmm. and so and that's the largest part of the flow in the mid latitudes. And that's so, right. yes, there's no frontogenesis of much accord that occurs in the geostrophic or nearly non-divergent flow in that portion of the storm. That makes it really really interesting. So, so
2: there's so, a, a, a question
1: that you know, just motivated from John's
2: um, really great explanation for the formation of these precipitation structures, since it's largely non Um And we're talking about banded structures and precip earlier. Are these more easily forecast or better forecasted in models? And have you observed an improvement in the forecast of them over the last decade or several decades?
1: That's a great question. Uh, Dave Novak, who's now at NMC, and I forget in what particular um, position, but it's pretty high up at NMC. Dave was a graduate student at at Albany, and he did work that looked at the actual banding within this portion, this northwest occluded quadrant of the storm. And he abandoned the notion that, you know, this is just think about purely uh, non-divergent winds. And he looked at the full wind up there. And so uh, layered on top of the broad scale forcing for upward vertical motions in that portion of the storm, which really does come from vorticity rearrangement by the geostrophic wind, there is uh, quite often frontogenetic activity that's forced by the ageostrophic part of the wind. And so that on top of the broad scale of uh, vertical motions in that region, I think probably accounts for the bands. So is that... So, is that, uh, so just to answer that ahead, Michael's yeah. question, I'm not sure that um, the forecasting has gotten any substantially better by better understanding of this process, it's just that the expert judgment that one might use to interpret forecast models and their right. output is better because you understand the underlying physical no, processes. No,
2: right. I think the understanding of the physical processes is one yeah. really key. Into any other sorts of improvements, but if you can understand the structure and your, your work has certainly pointed toward how to understand that structure. But I guess I was getting more at if since that's a that thermal ridge that gets formed is a sort of a key part of most mid-latitude cyclone yeah. life cycles, that's something that models can handle pretty well. They and can. Is it is, is it a consequence of that that we might see that these wraparound precip so called wraparound precipitation structures are probably more easily forecast because it's a significant Yeah, I
1: think that's right. I think they have – maybe maybe what you're suggesting, I think I would agree with it in this case. That's such a predominant dynamical footprint of the life cycle of the storm that – if you don't get that right, you don't, you don't have a chance of getting anything else right in the models, and right. we know that they get a lot of it right. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's such a big piece of the puzzle that they do usually do a fairly good job of that. So, and then on top of it, there's embroidered some mesoscale frontogenesis on the adjoining baroclinic right. zones.
0: Yes, and so the frontogenesis on the edge of that. Now, this is getting in the weeds, and I'll back out of the weeds in just a second, but that frontogenesis is that associated with deformation in this uh, quadrant of the cyclone? Because we hear a lot about that as being the deformation zone, and in fact, it's, some of it is, but a lot of it's not, but some of it it might be associated with that frontogenesis on the and the bands. Is that what you were saying, John?
1: Well, yeah. It, it could be one. It could be horizontal deformation in the flow or divergence in the flow. Because mm-hmm. I would be appealing now to the non-geostrophic part of the flow broadly to okay. explain any frontogenetic activity that takes on any high profile. And it, it has that possibility that both of those components are contributing. Uh, so yes, I'd say yeah, that's probably accurate.
0: Let me pull out of the weeds for a second and just say that that northwestern side of these winter cyclones is a horrible and place to be in terms of winter weather Uh, if you have to drive or travel. I've lived in Kansas for 10 Mm -hmm. years, and we oftentimes got in that part of the winter storm, and it is really tough to manage because visibilities are often cut to near zero. You have blowing winds out in the plains, and it is a vicious place to be on a winter storm, and I can tell you, uh, living through many of them, um, if you have to travel or have to manage your way through those, those are uncomfortable times, because that can be uh, pretty scary stuff.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's a really, uh, you're exactly right. It's a horrible place to be, unless you love the winter and you don't have to get anywhere. <laughs> and
0: you don't have to go anywhere, exactly. Right.
1: Yeah, My um, favorite let's part see. of the storm.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Let's talk about one more uh, aspect of uh, storms we kind of talked about a little bit. Not the northwest side, necessarily, but let's talk about the fronts, like the surface fronts in particular. Um, I guess they're actually three-dimensional, so it's not just the surface, but we often are taught early on that fronts, the rain and bad weather with fronts is associated with them acting like shovels. They lift the air out ahead of them in a way that a shovel would. Uh, that's not how it works for the most part. Explain that.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a useful uh, heuristic device to think of them as a snowplow or a shovel, but they are much more interesting than that. There's a tendency at active fronts, and I'd call active fronts after John Sawyer, who was a great British meteorologist in the mid-20th century. Um, active fronts are those associated with clouds and precipitation, and that, that that you know that's persistent. And active fronts are characterized by something that Michael mentioned earlier: frontogenesis, the tendency for the horizontal winds to intensify by advecting temperatures of different characteristics or air of different temperature characteristics towards each other. So differential temperature advection intensifying the temperature gradient. And that leads to an imbalance in the mid-latitude flow that is compensated for by the production of a secondary circulation, a non-geostrophic circulation, where the warm air rises and the cold air sinks. And that accounts for the air ascending at the front, um, not a snowplow. Not a
0: snowplow, right.
1: But I would also, I mean, as John
2: described, it this process that um, the circulation that occurs in the vicinity of fronts, when the horizontal temperature gradient are, is getting stronger, um, that leads to the you know, production of clouds and precipitation. But you can also view, um, if you're talking about a snow pl- you know, a plow of some sort or a shovel of some sort, that shovel's moving relative to the snow and it picks it up, right? Mm. Well, you could look at air moving toward a front the front has a sloping structure to it depending on which frame of reference you're in, either air moving toward the front or the front moving toward the air the air has to rise along that if it's going to conserve certain properties. And so I think, as John explained earlier, that as a heuristic, it's useful to think about fronts that way. And in fact in some ways you can view them that way if you look at things that say in so-called isentropic coordinates, another way of looking at Mm. the atmosphere. I think there's some legitimacy to that argument if you look at it from that. But it doesn't offer the, I think, rich explanation for the frontal structure and precipitation structure that um, this isentropic nice viewpoint Hey, Ma-
0: Hey, yeah. Michael, do you remember, and John, when I was doing a weather watch uh, in Madison? What's I a think front? It
2: was...
0: yeah. <laughs> Just for people at home who don't know, I was doing a weather briefing, a presentation. I was a young graduate student, um, and I was talking about fronts or something. And then, Michael, you chime in, you go, uh, what's a front? <laughs> in front of like I don't know the whole department, and uh, it's a complicated question. It's and not it, easy.
1: Yeah. It ain't easy not because easy.
0: it depends. Yeah. I was thinking about well, it's a whole lot of things, and I, I think I gave one example of being including things like density currents and sea breezes, and because I was underneath the deformation radius, the really small scale things, and you're like. Those aren't fronts. <laughs> <They're like, laughs> yes, they are. It's just totally a matter of terminology, but those right. were wonderful conversations.
1: <laughs> That's how front? we forge the excellence that you have broadcast for years at your current station. <laughs>
0: right. I paid him for that, just so you
1: know.
0: <laughs> All right, guys, we're gonna, uh, let's uh, take a little bit of a break, and we're going to come back and talk about some of the bigger issues like climate and weather systems and some of the research that you're working on now. So uh, we'll be right back.
1: All right.
0: Welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Greg Postel and we have uh, today professors from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Dr. John Martin and Dr. Michael Morgan. We've been talking all morning long about uh, winter storms, weather predictability. We've gotten in the weeds a little bit. Hopefully that didn't scare you away, but we try to bring it back to sort of real uh, issues and the problems that we confront with winter storms. And another problem, that we're going to be confronting and in the future and we are now in fact is climate change and uh we want to talk about uh john some of your and michael some of your recent research which was um very revealing in terms of the amount of cold air that is available uh anymore and uh and how you came across that because it is a remarkably uh brilliant but yet almost back of the envelope way of looking at how the world is changing go ahead
1: Oh, well, yeah. I, it, a couple of years ago, I guess it was 2011, 12, we had a really boring winter in Madison. It wasn't snowing much. It was cold in Tripoli, Libya. It was cold in Alaska. And uh, it frustrated me, having, you know, liking the winter as much as I do. So I had I to figure out a way to enjoy the winter even when we didn't have one. And uh, <laughs> the best way to do that is to you know, celebrate its depth somewhere else. And so one way to do it was to look at the extent horizontally over the hemisphere of air that was as cold as minus five degrees Celsius at about a mile above sea level. And minus five at that level tends to be the rain-snow dividing line and winter storms or something close to it is anyway. So that was what was in my mind. And it, it occurred to me, you can calculate the aerial extent of this cold air every single day in the wintertime, any other time of the year as well. And then With the availability of these uh, long-term time series of, uh, you know, reanalysis data, one can look at this back 70 years. And so I started to look at, has this aerial extent on average in a winter season, December, January, and February, been changing over the last 70 years? And to my surprise, maybe not to my surprise, but to my, my, uh, I was happy about it, we found out that it's systematically shrinking at every threshold level that you choose at 850 millibars, one mile above the ground. So the the aerial extent of cold air around the northern hemisphere's north pole in the wintertime is getting smaller each winter since 1948. And it doesn't seem to have any explanation other than the southern edges of it keep on getting eroded by the fact that we have an increase over those 70 years of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that re-radiates energy back to the surface and erodes some of the cold air.
0: That is remarkable. And there's no clearer example of sort of this depleting resource of cold air that doesn't mean we're not getting winter, uh, doesn't mean we're not getting snow, but there is statistically less and less of both, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, and this is hemispheric-wide, too, so as you point out, you know, in any given longitude sector, like, say, Central North America, you Mm -hmm. may well have a period where it's exceptionally cold, even against the standard that's been set for a 70-year average. But that means somewhere else in the hemisphere, most likely, because the trend is downward overall, most likely somewhere else is having an exceptionally warm similar period, and that's been true for the last 70 years. Did you find any similar...
0: um uh, tendencies, I guess, or trends in the uh, southern uh, hemisphere vortex.
2: The yeah, the same pole.
1: thing is true in the southern hemisphere to a lesser uh, extent. the the the, the, decre- the rate of decrease is a little bit less there because the continentality in the southern right. hemisphere is considerably less than it is in the northern hemisphere.
0: That's pretty remarkable stuff. Now, did you you stop somewhere near the? Well, you said 850 millibars. What if you went up near the tropopause or went up uh, into the stratosphere, the stratospheric polar vortex? Did you see or did you look first of all? And if you did, did you see any changes
1: there as well? I haven't done that yet, but that's easy to do. It would be the exact same calculation with a different variable at a different level. But it would be really interesting to know. I suspect we'd probably see a cooling in the stratosphere in the lower part of the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, With the tropopods getting higher. Yeah, that's consistent with what the satellites are telling us. Mm -hmm. And, John, I think that that diagnostic that you've
2: developed and have been applying over the last several years is really a nice comprehensive one to look at measures of, as you've described it, the, uh, the shrinkage of the cold air in the, during the wintertime. And you look at this also during the rest of the year?
1: Yeah, so. uh, it shrinks away to almost zero in the Northern Hemisphere around July 10th to the 20th. But the, the day on which it disappears and reappears is interesting, too. You can kind of see that gap widening a little bit. So even into the summertime, it's a discernible signal.
2: So a nice measure of the global nature of our climate
1: change. Yeah, yeah, that's right, right.
0: Do you think that would uh, change the distribution or statistics of the cyclones that roam around the periphery of the polar vortex or the, you know, that circumpolar flow of the the weather systems, in other words, that go by the world, you know, that we get our snowstorms or rainstorms? Does that sort of shape and intensity of that cold pool? Is that going to change the storms that we get? I'm just trying to bring this into practical terms. Like, say you live in New York or you live in Chicago or anybody. Is this going to change anything?
2: I would think, and John, this is sort of John's diagnostic. He's looked at this a lot. But if that five degree Celsius isotherm Mm -hmm. minus minus five five degree Celsius isotherm lies in the bundle of isotherms that characterizes the northern hemisphere's um, main baroclinicity. Mm. If that's shrinking, it might say something about the shift in the location of these right. cyclones. That's right. Um, I don't know if it says anything about the intensity, because you'd want to look at how other isotherm, aerial average extent of those isotherms is changing as well in that mm-hmm. bundle. But it may not change the
1: intensity, but maybe the track. Yeah, the- I, I, that's a very good point. I think that one would have to look through a, a, a deeper column and maybe take a column average, maybe right. 1,500 millibar thickness or something, and mm-hmm. see whether or not the gradient is weakening at current latitudes where it's been strong, and then if it's migrating poleward, which I suspect it is. I think you could show that. I think it would be quite easy to show that, yeah. actually. It might be a, a neat way to to back out a poleward uh, increase in frequency of cyclones that mm-hmm. may or may not be occurring right now. Yeah. Sound, sounds
0: like an undergraduate thesis in the making.
1: Yeah, I think so, because it's kind of got some pieces that are readily assemblable like that, yeah, it's w- modular.
0: W- now, now, along with that, I mean, you one way to measure the, I guess, some metric of... Frequency and or intensity of the weather systems that roam through, what about you've been working on this sort of this jet parameter, this waviness of the jet stream, right? And mm. that's been changing as well. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, um, I've, and I don't really know how directly it's connected to the track of weather systems. I know there should be a connection. I haven't mm-hmm. explored what exactly it might be, but I think there's ways that one can objectively identify the spine of the two species of jet. Um, jet streams that that occur near the tropopause in northern hemisphere, the subtropical jet at low latitude and the polar jet, which is much more meandering but at high latitude. And I think we figured out a way to do that. Myself and, and some of my graduate students have figured that out. And then we're using that uh, metric to determine how wavy is that line that one might draw through the middle of the spine of the jet around the hemisphere. How wavy is it? And it seems like it's become in both species, it's become systematically wavier over Hmm. the same 70-year period. What that means, I'm still exploring, I don't know. All I can say now is I can report the fact that both species of jet, by this objective measure, um, in a flexible objective measure, feature-based measure, uh, has become wavier. Sounds like a measure of wave
0: activity or entropy of some kind, like a uh, vorticity squared or something like that, that's in the weeds. But, uh, but I'll say this, Greg, some of is? the
1: critics of of the paper that was submitted on this have said, look at local wave activity. So oh. you're on exactly the right track. And I have to educate myself about that before I can really uh, get this thing off the ground.
0: Among many other things. Yeah. Well, a, yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but just this, kidding. Right. But this is a, a global measure or yeah.
0: a hemispheric
2: right. measure of the waviness, not right. a local measure. And so that's, right. Right. that's an important distinction, I think. Yeah, that's right.
0: Well, so do you think that goes hand in hand with maybe changes? I mean, it sounds like it's related to or associated with or one in the same of blocking frequency uh, over the long term. Like we're now starting to see. Uh, I know there's plenty of research out there. I think Stu Ostro here at the Weather Channel has been working on... Uh, notions of these very large amplitude, uh, much more uh, meridional rather than zonal um, anomalies in the jet stream. So we're seeing more of them, big ridges, more blocks that would uh, sort of equate to more waviness, probably by many measures. So I'm wondering if that's part and parcel of this whole notion that we're losing some of the power of the west wind in the jet stream.
1: Yeah, that might be true. I, I haven't really pushed this idea into that realm. I know people have been talking about that, and that's a really excellent place to go next. Uh, but I'd have to educate myself about that, too. I know Michael's working on uh, some, uh, um, what, is this L, what does LIM stand for? Linear inverse modeling. And one of the problems they were using as a basis for developing this linear inverse model is blocking in the Pacific. So it's related to that. Right. And so,
2: I mean, just blocking in general, not focusing on the on the linear inverse model, which is really a powerful tool. And um, we have a great group of people working on it here at Wisconsin. I remember I uh, built
0: one, and that was in the private sector. I built a linear inverse model to look at uh, predictability out a couple of weeks, and it was really good. <laughs> so right, right. I mean, I'm these, very these models can it's actually, good stuff.
2: they can show significant skill beyond what dynamical models oh, show. yes. But one of the interesting things is if you can begin to ramp up in a local sense, sort of the waviness of the flow, and then put it into a favorable regime, maybe a large-scale difluent flow, and you have lots of waves upstream of it. I think there's been some work back in the 80s and 90s that looked mm. at mechanisms that can contribute to the growth of blocks, and they have to have just the right structure. And so we've been using this limb to identify sort of optimal structures that when fed into, you know, that are upstream of um, blocking anticyclones, or precede blocking anticyclones, and what what do they grow into? And so that's there's still work that's ongoing, but that's kind of an interesting question. Mm.
0: Those blocks are, are very very impactful weather regimes. Whether you're on the good side of them, they can bring kind of fair uh, anomalous weather, really warm times that last weeks in the winter time, and they can also be nasty cold weather producers as well um, in the winter time, which can last again for weeks. So blocking uh, phenomenon, those are challenging aspects. They're very difficult to forecast, and we, as you said. Michael, that we know yet really know a whole lot about how they're evolving uh, in the climate changing world.
1: Yeah, that's right. The most famous storm in the universe is a 300 plus year old block in, on Jupiter. So, <laughs> red <right>? spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a big anticyclone, cyclone and it's kind of who knows why it's there. <laughs> It's like a modon or something like that. I don't know exactly what that thing is for sure.
0: (laughs) 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 Oh, that's so fun! All right, guys. You know, if there's anything else that you want to talk about, um, I am almost out of topics here. So, if you want to, if there's anything there that you can think of that you want to bring up, we can do it. Otherwise, I am going to, I am going to close the show. How about that? It was a wonderful. It works. uh, How long was that? It seems like it was about five minutes, but it was. 11 hours is what I'm being told. No, it wasn't. A <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was great. Uh, but John and Michael, wonderful professors at UW-Madison, the real UW. Uh, just kidding. Um, the, uh, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is a great school to go to <laughs> if uh, you're interested in weather of, of any kind. And uh, these guys are uh, the best in the business. And so thank you guys so much, Dr. John Martin and Dr. Michael Morgan, for joining me on Weather Geeks this week. Talking all. Things from winter storms to predictability to some climate change. It's been a, a wonderful hour, and thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so for the our opportunity. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Take care, guys. And until next week, maybe we'll have to do this again. And uh, Yeah. Love to. And uh, extend it by a couple of hours because <laughs> I could <can> keep going. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. Thank you very much for joining us on Weather Geeks. Bye now.